Hello, and welcome back to the Glossy Week in Review podcast. I'm your host, senior fashion reporter Danny Parisi, and today we are doing a special episode of the Week in Review. Normally, my co-host is another Glossy reporter, but I thought it would be fun to have a guest host uh, from outside the Glossy newsroom. Um, so today, I'm joined by Dina Bari. Dina is the chief marketing officer of StockX, um, which most of our listeners have probably heard of, but Uh, If you haven't, it's a global marketplace, initially known for sneakers, but you guys do all sorts of stuff. There's apparel, jewelry, watches, collectibles, electronics, um, all sorts of great stuff, and definitely a big player in the resale space, which is something we talk about a lot. So Dina, thank you so much for joining us. It's really fun to have a guest on this episode. Thank you for having me, Danny. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah. And uh, obviously on the the Glossy podcast, we have uh, people from the industry on all the time and but it's usually an interview format. And this I want to kind of keep the same as a normal glossy weekend review format. We're going to talk about the news just with a kind of outside perspective. So um, we're going to just talk through three big news stories from this week, just like we normally do. Um, and uh, Dina's going to share a little bit of her thoughts on some of these topics. So we'll start talking about Crocs, um, which you know has had a meteoric kind of rise recently, especially since the pandemic. Um, we'll talk a little bit about the Met Gala and some of the fashion that came out of that. And then finally, we'll talk a little bit about dupe culture and Lululemon and how brands are navigating all that kind of stuff. But let's start talking about Crocs. So, um, Dina, you and I kind of talked a little bit beforehand uh, about what topics we wanted to touch on. I thought this was really interesting, but Crocs had their most recent earnings report, I think, um, last week. Their revenue was way up. They expected it to be up around 27% across the whole group, but it was actually up 36% to more than $800 million for the quarter. And that's including their subsidiary brand, Hey Dude, uh, was also up over like 100% to more than $200 million in revenue. Um, I have some thoughts on why this brand has really, you know, blown up. But I want to let's let's throw it to you first, Dina, just, uh, you know, I see a lot of Crocs collaborations and a lot of cool stuff that they do on StockX all the time. Um, what are your thoughts on Crocs, especially, you know, in the last couple of years? Well, in the StockX ecosystem, as in the broader world, Crocs have been on fire and they have been for well over a year. Um, for us, they're now the number two selling non-sneaker footwear brand. Uh, behind UGG. Yeah, which is astonishing, really. Uh, As a mother of three children, I'm just always picturing my kids as toddlers in their Crocs because it was the easiest footwear for kids just learning to walk. Um, But now, ironically, Mm -hmm. it's all over um, my sixth graders' friends. Uh, My ninth graders' uh, friends are wearing Mm -hmm. them too. So I think they've absolutely crested into what we love to call current culture. It's sort of this the zeitgeist of what young consumers are uh, caring about today, what they are wearing, what they're spending their money on, what they feel represents them and their values. So I think Crocs has landed squarely in that space. Um, You know, we have seen incredible price premiums on Crocs in 2022, last year, as well as this year. Um, It was actually the top uh, selling footwear brand, non-sneaker footwear brand as it relates to price premiums in 2022. So again, just topping the charts at StockX. And I think part of what has driven this is their very creative collaborations and partnerships that they've done with all kinds of celebrities um, that have helped, I think, bridge them from that, you know, the ugly, ugly um, slip-on shoe to something that means so much more. 
Yeah, definitely. I, I was actually going to mention that those collaborations are feels like such a big part of their growth. They've got this ongoing partnership with Salehi Bembury from Versace. Um, if you go on Hype Beast and just search Crocs, there's like, you know, cool new collaborations up there all the time. And I think you're right. They they were sort of the, in my opinion, like the quintessential, like ugly footwear, um, you know, in previous years, even though people were like, yes, they are very comfortable, they are very functional, uh, they sort of were just known for being kind of goofy looking. But I think they sort of, in addition to capitalizing, you know, uh, or or making really good use of collaborations, they've also um, kind of just rode the wave, I think, of like the ugly sneaker trend. Or I, I sense a little hint of an ironic note to their popularity, although maybe now the irony is totally gone and it's just completely sincere. But at least initially, I do feel like there's almost sort of a, a funny, I don't know, like a funny note to it. Like I'm wearing Crocs, like LOL, you know? Right. It's almost like, I don't care. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, it almost was like, you know, flipping off everybody who was worried about how they look. I think in the beginning, it was somehow born from that. Like, I don't care. I'm just going to, I'm going to do me. I'm going to be comfortable. Um, You know, I think about the uniform again, my own children wear pajama pants and Crocs or pajama pants Mm-hmm. Uh, and Uggs and socks out to, you know, any occasion they can. And I think there is something about making a statement about comfort and saying, I'm not going to conform. I'm not going to adhere to any other standards. I'm just going to, you know, let comfort lead me. I think that's where that started um, with, with Crocs. But you're right. I think they've sort of crossed that chasm into just sort of now they are the uniform. Um, yeah. And I think it's not only their celebrity and designer collabs, like you've mentioned with um, Salahe Bimberry, but also, you know, some of these sort of iconic brands, General Mills, um, Lightning McQueen, these brands that have so much um, prominence in kind of nostalgic culture, which is also having a renaissance. Um, So I think they're just making really smart decisions. Yeah, yeah, I I think you're you're totally right. And I always think with um, collaborations, you have to be a little careful about or not careful, but deliberate about who you select and who you work with and the balance between, is this just this company's product with a logo from another company on top of it? Um, and I, I think they've done a, a great job with that. Um, wondering, do, do you have any insight just from from seeing what comes through StockX and what does well on collaboration, like what collaborations tend to really work for both brands and what sort of just you know pass by unnoticed? Yeah, well, again, for Crocs in particular, if we're sticking with them, you know, they've seen incredible success with Salahit Bemery. We've seen, you know, millions of dollars of spend on his Pollux collection, Crocs Pollux collection. I think, mm. you know, what makes that a great collaboration is that it really is a unique visual identity. It's not just a logo or a color, right? It's like the whole shape of the shoe is unique and identifiable and different. Um, and now iconic. So I think that is, is and, and obviously he brings um, a level of sort of like luxury, creativity, taste to Crocs. Um, so I think in that sense, um, it's an example of a great collaboration that's sort of um, pairing their brand with something that's more aspirational and someone who's mm-hmm. more kind of creative, visionary, um, and upscale. And then I think, you know, going back to the other more pop culture or nostalgia culture brands like General Mills, like Pixar's Cars, I think um, they're just connecting again with something that's very significant to consumers. Uh, They're not just picking some random brand and, you know, 
reformatting uh, the outside of their of the shoe, they're actually like telling a story, which, you know, in our previous conversations, Danny, we've talked about that a lot, St- storytelling and how important that is mm-hmm. for the customer, how important that is for brands uh, who want to be authentic in the way that they market. So I think that's, um, you know, those are all examples of, of smart, kind of deep collaborations that Crocs has ex- executed. Yeah, no, I, I, and I think you can tell, you know, like you're saying, it's not just a, you know, a regular Croc shoe with a different logo on it. It's like transformed. It's 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 noticeably different. And I think you can kind of sense that this was not just, you know, one person's logo slapped on somebody else's. And and when it is just, this is the same sneaker or the same whatever that this brand always makes, but now it just has the color from some other brand or, you know, the logo. Yeah. If it's like, you know, this is like actually uh, a model, like a shape or a silhouette or something that they don't normally do. I think that can really make something transformative. Um, Okay, last thing on Crocs, I also wanted to say Crocs is one of those brands that I think is really interesting where they have sort of two audiences at the same time, where for a long time Crocs were favored by people who were on their feet all day. So cooks or nurses or, you know, people like I know people who work in hospitals who wear Crocs every day because it it saves their feet. Um, Probably a lot of those people are not really caring whether it's a collaboration with Slay Bembury or whoever. They just like need something functional. But at the same time, they do have this other audience that does care about that. And so I think about brands like um, like Champion or, you know, those kinds of athletic brands where they've got, you know, people's dads who just have been wearing the same crew neck champion sweatshirt for years and don't really care one way or the other. Or Dickies actually is maybe a good example or Carhartt, those sort of workwear mm-hmm. brands. They've got stuff that needs to just be functional and straightforward and there's a huge amount of people who just buy that because it's, you know, they need it for their job or something. And then there's a whole second audience who care about the collaboration and, you know, they watch for the drops and stuff like that. It, it must be interesting for those brands, I think, to balance those two audiences. Right. Absolutely. And I, and sometimes I think it happens to them. Like, I'm not sure using um, Dickies or Carhartt, for example, I'm not sure they sought, went out and sought the young hipster audience. I think... Mm-hmm. Um, it came probably the other way where that young hipster audience said, oh, I love that this brand stands for work um, and utility and a, a set of values that I want to be associated with. So I'm going to, maybe it's ironic or maybe it's not ironic. Uh, I'm going to associate myself with those values by wearing this brand that um, is worn by a totally different group of people. And then all of a sudden the brand found themselves in this position where they're being sort of adopted by the younger, mm-hmm. more progressive consumer um, and sometimes I think the less the brand does in those cases, <laughs> like the faster that fire can ignite. Of course, at some point, yeah. I think all brand, you know, Carhartt, you know, which is a Detroit hometown brand that we love, um, oh, yeah. you know, now they are being intentional. Of course, they're being, you know, very intentional about trying to win the hipster consumer. Um, but I don't think it starts that way. Yeah, I, I think you're totally right. I was going to say a similar thing where I feel like a light touch is maybe best in situations like that. You don't want to just drop everything to cater to this new customer, especially if you don't know if they're going to stick around or something. Obviously, Carhartt and Dickies, those brands have had this kind of, you know, more fashion forward customer around for a while. So I don't I think now it's OK for them to be more intentional. But yeah, early on, you don't want to, you know, push things too far and unbalance it. Um Let's move on and talk about the Met Gala. So, um, do you, Dina, do you what do you like look forward to the Met Gala? Do you like looking at all the crazy outfits and stuff that come out of it, or do you kind of just have a an obligation as a, a fashion industry person? 
I do. I love the Met Gala. I especially love the recaps because usually I mm-hmm. um, am in bed <laughs> early. Yeah. And so I miss, miss it in real time. But then I always love to see the recaps and the analysis from all the magazines and blogs uh, who, who wore what um, and who made a, an appropriate scene. So I do enjoy that. Yeah. So, so I'm kind of the same way. I don't really follow it in the moment or even the lead up. Um, but the next day I always like to look through the galleries and all that stuff. So the Met Gala happened this week. Um, I, I believe the theme was, it was Carl Lagerfeld, but there was some phrase like in memory of Carl or something like that. Mm-hmm. And exactly. as usual, as usual, there were people who, uh, stayed on theme and people who absolutely did, paid no regard to the theme. And then there also was the obligatory outfits that kind of creeped me out, which they seem to always have. Um, but uh, there was some there were some cool ones that were on theme to me. Um, uh, well, this is this one I didn't think was that great, but the Jared Leto in the giant cat costume, which was supposed to be Karl Lagerfeld's beloved uh, cat Choupette. And then I think Doja Cat also dressed like a cat too. So there was a lot of cat she did. stuff. That was very strange. I, I mean, I get the association, but it was it was bizarre. Yeah, those were both kind of odd. Um, the ones that I thought were a little more classy to me, um, and also coincidentally both menswear, and maybe that's just like what I gravitate more of toward, but um, ASAP Rocky wore just black leather gloves with his outfit, which I felt was sort of a subtle nod to Karl Lagerfeld and um, kind of a similar thing with Bradley Cooper with these big dark sunglasses. It, it was interesting seeing people take little elements from Karl Lagerfeld's like trademark kind of look and incorporating that because no one just like, dressed like him straight up with a silver ponytail. It was all just like taking little elements and stuff, which I really liked. Yeah, I think um, some of my favorite looks were sort of takes on his work while he was at Chanel, which is, of course, one of his most, mm-hmm. I think, renowned um, design designer roles. And so there was a lot of sort of long, elegant black dress with pearl, with a lot of pearl accents yes. and long pearl necklaces. And I thought those were all um, very elegant. Yeah. Didn't Lizzo have um, like strings of pearls all over her black dress, Lizzo? Yeah, I thought that Lizzo. was a great take on it. Mm-hmm. There were a number, I think there were four or five different looks where it was like the black dress with the pearls, including yeah. um, Carly Kloss and mm-hmm. um, Serena Williams, who both were sort of using that moment to announce their pregnancy, which I always love seeing the baby yeah. bump reveal at these big events. It's always uh, like a high stakes moment to reveal something so personal. And I think with those dresses that were like very long and form fitting and then the pearl necklaces, it was a very wow way to reveal. Yeah, definitely. And so a a criticism that I always see or a a complaint I always see about the Met Gala is people kind of, and this goes for a lot of runway, hot couture kind of stuff. I see people saying like, this is so unrealistic. No one would ever wear this outfit. It's like so ridiculous looking. But I kind of look at it as more of like an art kind of, um, like an art piece or like an art show. It's more about letting these designers show off these incredible works of craftsmanship. I mean, like you're saying that, that Lizzo dress with all the pearls is like gorgeous. And actually that that's one that maybe you could wear, but there are some that were obviously very impractical looking, but are still beautiful works of art that kind of use the medium of clothing to do something that, yeah, maybe is not practical for walking to the, the bodega or something, but is, you know, is beautiful. And, and I think especially going back the next day and seeing who designed each thing, because some of them can be sort of a departure from that brand or that designer's usual style. I was, I think that's really valuable. Um, even if it's, yeah, you're maybe not going to wear, uh, some of these outfits every day. Do you, oh, do you feel the same way? Absolutely. I mean, there's no 
no reality in this event, right? This is fantasy. It's mm-hmm. fashion fantasy. It's self-expression. It's interpretation, especially when you have a theme like this in honor and memoriam of Karl Lagerfeld, who was so creative and such an inspiration. I think that looking at how people interpret his work and his looks is so much fun. I was just thinking as we were talking about um, the black dress with the pearl look, and then I was thinking about Kim mm-hmm. Kardashian. Others may have made this association earlier, but to mm-hmm. me, I just clicked that actually her dress was an interpretation of the pearls, right? It was pretty extreme yep. and very revealing, but it was it was pearls. Uh, so I think seeing that and having her do it in her way and having Lizzo and all the others do it in their way is is part of the fun and really is the point. Yeah, for sure. And I, I do think, though, it, it raises the question of do events like this, like the Met Gala, um, translate into influencing trends in, in kind of everyday or regular fashion? Um, I, I think, Dina, that you and I have talked about not the Met Gala, but other sort of non-fashion things kind of seeping their way into influencing. We talked a while ago about the, um, the Last Dance having an impact on sales of Jordans or, uh, you know, I'm sure there's, you know, all sorts of things you could see uh, an effect on uh, through what's popular and what's selling and what people are into. Um, do you do you see events like this, like the Met Gala or like Paris Fashion Week or whatever, having a direct effect on, uh, you know, everyday sales of, of clothes? Well, I think it happens in a number of ways. With the Met Gala in particular, you know, we don't see a direct impact uh, on sales right. on StockX, but we absolutely see an impact of, um, you know, high fashion and celebrity and influencer-driven styles impacting what happens on the StockX platform. You know, we see this happen in the in the literal ways, like, you know, when Beyonce was photographed, I think it was about two years ago now, um, wearing a white Telfar shopping tote, mm. uh, the next, like, very next day on StockX, we start to see incredible movement with Telfar bags. So that type of thing can happen. I think also, you know, going back to our last conversation with Crocs, like that ugly comfort trend and how, you know, mm-hmm. that was seeded when celebrities like uh, Justin Bieber uh, and others were being photographed in, uh, you know, classically ugly shoes, whether they're Crocs, whether they're Hoka's, whether they're Solomon's, these shoes were not aligned with what was traditionally like the cool sneaker that was moving on StockX. And within a few months, we started to see incredible momentum with brands, those very brands, right? So they were ugly, comfortable first, and all of a sudden having been adopted by influencers, being um, seen on the feet, you know, of people at Fashion Week and other kind of influential moments, all of a sudden these are the emerging stars on the StockX platform. So we definitely see that relationship. And then, of course, there's, I think there are moments like the last dance where it's like such a directly relevant cultural mm-hmm. moment. Um, and you see the connection with what's happening on StockX. Like the all-star game every year is always a moment that influences yeah. sales of, you know, which basketball shoes are moving. Um, the brands do a nice job of storytelling around big moments on the calendar. So just this week, we actually had one of those cultural moments with the release of the Jordan 1 Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse shoe, which was released in a shock drop yesterday and created a lot of momentum for us on the platform. So that's another great example of a cultural moment creating um, some some great selling momentum on StockX. One final thing I want to say on the, the Met Gala is there's always, there's seemingly always a look that 
I have a high tolerance for weirdness, for avant-garde design, but there's always one look that kind of creeps me out. And this time it was not, it was not the Doja Cat face prosthetic to look like a cat, although that was a little freaky to me. The one that really got to me was the Lil Nas X, like entirely painted silver and his face covered in like pearls. That triggered some trypophobia or something to me. Like, I don't know, it gave me like chills in a bad way. And I had a very similar reaction to, again, Doja Cat, not at the Met Gala, but I think it was at Paris Fashion Week. This thing was the Scaparelli show. Remember when she was covered in like red diamonds, like all over her skin and face and like lips and stuff? I don't know why that, like, I couldn't look at it. It was like making me claustrophobic. Mm. I know you, I think you're similar to me in that, you know, we, we like the, the avant-garde designs. I like to see the craftsmanship and the ideas, but do you ever get that kind of feeling sometimes looking at these? I do. I mean, I think it's when you sort of can't recognize the person, the human inside that costume. For me, that's what it is. It's because you're, you know, you're sort of in an environment where you see faces and you see humanoid forms. And then all of a sudden there's something that looks almost CGI, alien-esque. And you're like, what is that? Who is that? How did that thing get here? Yeah. Um, so I, I understand. Yeah. I also imagine myself in that outfit or in that, and I'm like, you know, having a panic attack, just imagining having all that latex or whatever all over you. Um, anyway, let's move on to our last topic. Um, so I'm going to tie this to one specific thing that a a brand is doing, but, um, I also just want to talk about this kind of this concept in general of dupes, um, which the last couple of years, there's been a rise in the so-called like dupe culture, um, where people buy sort of cheap knockoff products that are, are sort of directly copy a more expensive product from another brand, which is funny. Like I was reading all these trend articles of like dupe culture is the new thing. And I'm like, I feel like that's been, uh, you know, knockoffs have been around for forever, but, um, I guess the the difference is that these are meant to closely mirror a real product, but are not actually claiming to be that product. Um, and uh, there's more than like 3.5 billion views on the hashtag dupe on TikTok. The interesting thing was that this week, uh, actually this weekend, so I think starting the day after this podcast goes live, Lululemon is doing this campaign where they're hosting a dupe swap in LA, a pop-up. I think it's just two days where you can bring in um, sort of dupes of Lululemon's Align leggings and they will take them from you and give you a free pair of real Lululemon leggings uh, for free which obviously is not a very sustainable long-term practice, but as a publicity marketing kind of thing, um, it's clear that the idea is to sort of get people, you know, don't don't go for the dupe, get the real thing. It's it's better, it's worth it, um, that kind of thing. So obviously you're in, in resale. I, w- I think this as this, I think of this as a great opportunity for resale because, you know, why buy the dupe when you can just get the real thing? And if you're worried about the price, you can get it secondhand. That's my kind of thought process. Um, Wondering what you think about this whole phenomenon and like how Lululemon's handling it or how maybe other brands or, you know, companies that you've seen handle it. Um, Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I agree with you that this is very interesting. I think, you know, this, um, there are some things that are just truths. Like one is that, authenticity matters to the customer and so does price and and so there is on on that sort of curve there is probably an inflection point where a customer might say hey I'm not I'm willing to give up on authenticity be, to get something at a lower price or vice versa and I think the psychology of that is is very interesting but we know that in a really timeless way uh, people are willing to pay uh, a certain price for authentic, products. And of course, that is a topic that's very near and dear to my heart and to the StockX uh, value system, because that's 
sort of why we came into being as a company, right? To help customers get access to authentic products. And uh, we obviously invest a lot of time, resources, um, human capital in our authentication process and making sure that we are helping customers get those authentic products. Um, So I think it's fascinating, one, that there is sort of a subset of Gen Z that uh, is willing to forgo authenticity. Uh, And secondly, I think that that a brand like Lululemon is willing to stand up and say, look, we stand by our product so much so that we're going to take all the dupes off your hands. It's a great, I mean, it is a stunt and I think they're getting a ton of great press and I'm sure they'll get great turnout. But I also think it really says how much they stand by their product and how much they believe that they are delivering a superior product uh, than the competition. So I think it's it's a really interesting way to deliver that message. It's sort of um, show them, don't say it, you know. Yeah, definitely, and and it's. I think you're 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 totally right in that there's this balance between price and authenticity. And sometimes, um, if you really want something and you can't go authentic, you go for like the lower price. Or uh, and and um, it's interesting because I think it's also very environmentally kind of um, dictated. Uh, I I have always been you know a menswear fan. I read GQ religiously, you know, as a teenager but I couldn't afford any of that stuff. And so like I did buy kind of cheap H&M stuff that looked like it, but it wasn't because I was like, it's just as good. I knew it wasn't as good. I just, that's just all I could get. Um, And right now, especially, um, well, to finish my thought, now that I'm older and I can afford some of that stuff, I, I like really, really am reluctant to buy, you know, cheap, fast fashion stuff. I would rather buy fewer things and, you know, spend a little more and have it be good. But I also can actually do that now. Whereas before, you know, my only option was, to get kind of the cheap, low quality copy. Um, And right now I think there's an interesting, you know, factor, which is that there's, you know, everyone's talking about the macroeconomic climate. Um, Some, you know, big, a lot of consumers have less spending power than they did, or that at the very least they are more conscious about what they're spending on. So I'm sure that's playing a a part of it too. So there, there, I imagine there's consumers who know that it's not as good as the actual Lululemon leggings. They would get the Lululemon leggings if they could. Um, but it's just, you know, they're priced out or at least, or their priorities are elsewhere, you know? Exactly. Although we've all been through this where we buy the cheaper version of the thing we really want and then it falls apart after like four washes and you're Mm -hmm. spending that money anyway to replace the dupe. So again, speaking to the quality, um, of the real thing, I think, especially in this environment where there's more pressure on the consumer, there's less discretionary income, but at the same time, there's more concern about the environmental impact of these disposable products as well. So I think that's another, you know, it just depends on what matters to the particular consumer who's at the table. And if they care more about getting um, you know, access to the real thing at the right price, well, fortunately, there's a marketplace like StockX here to serve. Um, if they're concerned about like, you know, you 10, 15 years ago, like you're saying, um, and they just want it, you know, the next best thing and they want it right now, even if it won't last, then there are cheap alternatives for them. But I think there's, you know, the environmental consideration is another one that seems to be more and more important to people. Um, and so in mm-hmm. with that in mind, you know, buying something that will endure, that you don't have to replace, that doesn't go out of style, I think that's another thing to consider. 
Yeah, no, I, I think you're 100% right. And that's why, you know, not to call out specific companies, but whenever I see like Shein is making, you know, $10 billion or whatever, I'm like, oh, they're, the quality is so bad. And they put out so much stuff that just goes in the trash. Like it's, it really kind of hurts a little bit, especially when at the same time, it's like Gen Z cares about sustainability. Uh, and I'm like, well, some and of them <laughs> clearly don't. Yeah, and, and yet someone is buying all this stuff. Right, and it's not just that the product falls apart, but it's also that in the consumer's mind, you know, that person is buying this item thinking, I, I'm only going to wear it for a little while. Again, that disposable mindset. So it's it's sort of a two-way street. It's like the quality is low, but also the commitment from the consumer is low. And I think that creates like just a negative dynamic, certainly not good for the environment and landfills. Um, and also, yeah. I think just economically, not not the best decision in the long run to burn um, like lots of purchases that way. But um, yeah. again, sometimes uh, youth is wasted on the young. Like we we know this now <laughs> that we're older and wiser, right? Yeah, hopefully. Um, but that actually reminds me of something I wanted to ask you. I, I wrote a story this week about um, an increase at at some resale companies of sales of lower condition goods. So. Uh, like fair condition rather than good or like new um, because it's cheaper. And mm. then people just have, you know, a, a Birkin bag that's kind of beat up looking, but it's like, who cares? Mm. It's a Birkin bag. It's still really nice. Um, obviously, I know your, you know, StockX's business model is is like dead stock, like, like new um, or new quality stuff. Is that something you guys have ever thought about or considered at all? Is, or is that, you know, a core identity of StockX is that everything's kind of unworn and you want to stay with that? Yes. Yeah, so today, everything on the platform um, is is new. Uh, mm. We have in the past had um, used condition bags, for example, uh, and mm -hmm. we ended up moving away from that because we found that yeah. aligning expectations with the consumer when there is an alternate condition is very difficult, right? Like you say, yeah. hey, this is in good condition. The consumer um, gets the bag and they say, well, this isn't good condition, this is poor condition. And then there's just a disconnect and it creates a lot of challenges. So for it's us- It's kind of subjective. It is subjective, exactly. And for us, especially at the time that we made this decision, when we were really looking to, you know, we were in hyper growth mode, we were scaling categories, we were scaling countries. We were uh, very concerned about like, how can we just be as efficient as possible in our processes? And having these other conditions did not fit. Um, and so we went back to dead stock, new only. Um, I think, again, that creates a great, consistent customer experience, which is one of the things that we're really committed to. Um, although, of course, we're leaving opportunity on the table because we know there's a big market for use and other conditions. Um, and it's something we talk about. But right now, we are going to stay committed to new product. And we still know that we yeah. can provide value to consumers, right? Like we've seen a huge increase in interest in you know, uh, I'll put in air quotes, deals, right? Um, whether it's mm -hmm. below retail pricing, um, we just launched a feature called trending deals. So we're definitely seeing, as I think everyone is, the consumer is, is more price sensitive today than they have been in recent times. And so they're looking for that and, and we're serving them well by providing, you know, value um, in our StockX experience. Yeah, I mean, I was going to say, you guys, even though it's all new and you don't do, you know, beat up old bags or something, um, you do, I think, kind of hit both audiences in that you've got below retail stuff, you've got above retail stuff, people who price is no object, I just want this, you know, super limited thing. 
and then also people who price is an object and I'm just looking to get this, you know, cheaper than buying it new um, or buying it from whoever. So I do think you guys are kind of positioned to hit both anyway, even without the, you know, going in. And like you're saying, just because there's money on the table doesn't always mean you need to take it, especially if taking it, you know, would compromise you in some other way. So I don't think it's even necessarily bad that you're doing that. Um, any other thoughts on this topic, though, of like dupe culture and how brands and how resale is all kind of responding to it? I mean, I think we covered a lot of the salient points around, you know, consumer consciousness and and sort of two to to groups, right? Some people who place that premium on authenticity and won't accept anything but, um, and how how brands like Lululemon is doing with this uh, Align dupe swap, they're trying to put their money where their mouth is, right? Around the quality of their product. And then you've got the other group um, of customers that's more focused on just getting product. You know, it's what I need right now. I can't afford the real things and I don't care. I feel smart because I'm paying less for a a fake and I'm not trying to hide that. I'm not trying to pretend that it's legit. Um, And that's, you know, that is a customer set who has a different set of values. And, and it's one of the great things about this capitalist world we live in. There's always a brand and a company that's going to serve um, that customer set, you know. So, but you know where we stand at StockX on authenticity. It's, you know, it's always been at the center of everything we do. And we continue to um, improve and level up how we deliver on that. Cool. Well, let's let's call it there. But Dina, this was so great to have you on. Um, again, this is our first week interview episode with a guest host and couldn't have picked a better person to do it with us. So thank you so much. Thanks, Danny. I enjoyed the conversation yeah. and hopefully this starts a new thing for you. Yeah, I hope so too. Well, hopefully in the next couple of weeks, we'll, we can have some more guest hosts on. Um, for those of you listening, don't forget to give us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, wherever you're listening to this. Um, that helps us out a lot. And don't forget to subscribe to the Glossy Podcast because you'll hear interviews with cool industry insiders like Dina every Wednesday. And we can review episodes with me and a co-host every Friday. Um, so until next time, thank you for listening. Thank you.